If you will, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 27. Psalm 27, verses 1 to 5 is our scripture reading this morning, and then we'll turn to our, our sermon passage, 1 Samuel 15, verses 1 to 35. Please, if you will, turn to Psalm 27, verses 1 to 5. That's our scripture reading this morning. And then after that, we'll turn to Psalm 15, verses 1 to 35 for our sermon passage today. Brothers and sisters, this is the very word of God. Please give your full attention to it now as it is being read. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Now turning to 1 Samuel 15, verses 1 to 35. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted, destruction, devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul went to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. 
And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Samuel said, Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice it to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as, the iniquity and, is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and tore, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah. And Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we are grateful to you again for this portion of your word that we have heard read to us this morning. We pray that by your spirit you would cause us to have understanding. We pray that by your spirit... That the more we understand about you, the more we understand about your plan of salvation for your people, the more we would seek to glorify your holy name. May you be exalted among your people this morning, we pray, as your word is now preached. 
And we pray this all in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Now you remember a couple of weeks ago when we were in chapter 14 and we finished up chapter 14 that right there at the end there was a brief summary of uh, the, the campaigns and the fighting, the successes of Saul, a summary of his time as king. And it's very difficult to know about chapter 15 whether this is chronological in terms of, of happening uh, uh, right around the time prior to, immediately prior to Samuel anointing uh, David or when this happens in the life of Saul it could be that, that the narrator, the author of the book of 1 Samuel, is stepping back to give one instance of one of the things that Saul did, or to clarify some of what Saul did. This morning's passage has a great number of difficult matters to work through, as we're going to see uh, as we go through the passage. But it's sufficient to say for now that Saul's reign as king is in a downward spiral that is only going to get worse. Saul had already been told by Samuel in chapter 13 that the Lord was discontinuing his line from the kingship. Saul's dynasty would end with him rather than being transferred to his firstborn son, Jonathan. And this was because of what Saul had done in offering an unlawful sacrifice to God. In chapter 15, Saul commits another egregious sin, which ends in the loss of the word of the Lord coming to him through Samuel. Saul's disobedience to God's commands was, as Samuel makes clear, a rejection of God's word. And because Saul rejected God's word, Samuel tells Saul that God has rejected him as king. And of course, this won't be the last time that Saul commits an egregious sin. As we work our way through the sermon today, I'd ask you to consider this thought. Because we don't fear God properly, we don't obey him fully. But Jesus sacrificed himself to save sinners who often fear people more than God. Let me say that again. Because we don't fear God properly, we don't obey him fully. But Jesus sacrificed himself to save sinners who often fear people more than God. The sermon is made up of three parts. The first part, holy war. The second part, obedience and sacrifice. And the third part, no fear. So again, holy war, that's the first section of the sermon. Obedience and sacrifice is the second section. And no fear is the third. So let's look at, at the first section of the sermon today, holy war. The Amalekites, you may well remember, were enemies of Israel stretching all the way back to when Israel first crossed through the Red Sea into the wilderness after they had been rescued out of Egypt, after they had been delivered out of their slavery, out of the house of bondage, as the, the, the preamble to the Ten Commandments puts it. And Amalek and his people, almost immediately when you read the account in, in Exodus chapter 17, Amalek and his people, they, they start harassing the people of Israel almost immediately upon their uh, crossing into, uh, uh, on the other side of the Red Sea. And then there's this famous battle in which whenever Moses held up his hand with the, his staff in it, Joshua, who was leading the fight against the Amalekites, uh, would prevail but whenever Moses' arm grew weary and it dropped down with the staff in it, Joshua and the Israelites would fall back. They would begin to lose. And eventually Aaron and Hur came alongside Moses. And they held up his arms as he held up the staff. And Israel uh, defeated Amalek and his family. 
In Exodus chapter 17, verse 14, God told Moses this. Write this as, an, as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And now in our passage, nearly 400 years later, Saul, Israel's first king, is tasked with carrying out the fulfillment of that promise. And we think justice is slow in our day and age. But it took 400 years. But we're reminded that God's justice is not slow. Keep this in mind as well, related to Saul's disobedience and his failure completely to destroy all of the Amalekites and all of their possessions. That it was an Amalekite at the end of 1 Samuel, at the end of Saul's life, it was an Amalekite who Saul asked to kill him, to put him to death. Now the Amalekites attempted to thwart God. They attempted to prevent God from carrying out his plan to save his people, to take them into the promised land. And because of that, Israel's first king was ordered to devote to destruction the Amalekites, as Samuel says in verse 3 of our chapter. God does not countenance harm being done to his people. He does not tolerate it when people seek to thwart his plan of salvation, his purposes related to redemption, the redemption of his people. And so the Israelite army, much like a sword, would be used in the instrument of God's hand as he carries out judgment. What's more, the Israelites are not to touch the things devoted to Destruction. They, they might want to take some of these things as spoils of war. But they're specifically warned not to do this. They are to devote everything to destruction. But what does that mean? Devotion to destruction is an integral part of holy war in the Bible. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, God told Moses that when the Israelites took possession of the promised land, they would have to carry out the, the complete destruction of its inhabitants in Canaan. And there's a footnote in the English Standard Version of the Bible that explains that the phrase devote to destruction means to set apart as an offering to the Lord. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. When Saul talks about the fact that he was setting apart or the people were setting apart these things as a sacrifice. The devotion to destruction of these things was in itself a sacrifice to the Lord. There was nothing else that needed to be done. As one commentator puts it, holy war is different from wars of aggression or self-defense. This commentator writes, it is war at God's command, carried out as his judgment and on his behalf. The victory is the Lord's, so there is no material advantage for the army. The spoils of war belong to the Lord and therefore are therefore holy. People and property alike are put under a ban for this reason. In other words, the people are banned from taking these things. These things are banned, in a sense. They are devoted to the Lord. They are a sacrifice unto Him. Now, it is difficult for us. It may be very difficult for some of you as you, as you hear uh, what is read to understand how God could order the complete destruction of a people. And, and so some of us may find ourselves struggling with what we consider to be genocide here. God is using Israel to punish the Amalekites for their sins. They didn't just fight Israel all those years before when Israel was first making its way into the promised land. The Amalekites ultimately were fighting God. They were seeking to stop his plan. 
And we read that Saul had over 200,000 troops in his army to fight against the Amalekites. And in verse 6, he tells the Kenites, these people who were friendly with Israel uh, as they were uh, coming out of the Red Sea, he tells the Kenites to depart from among the Amalekites. And then in verse 7, we read that Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. But Saul and the people spared the king of the Amalekites. They didn't destroy everything. Instead, they saved the best of the sheep and the oxen, the fattened calves and the lambs. But everything that was despised and worthless, verse 10 says, they devoted to destruction. If devotion to destruction, the complete destruction of all things of a people, is intended as a sacrifice to the Lord, then what does it mean that it was only the worthless things? Those things that were considered to be subpar that Saul and the people devoted to destruction. Saul doesn't understand that the best, as well as what is considered worthless, is supposed to be sacrificed to God when he commands them to devote something to destruction. And so Saul is essentially committing the same sins as as Eli's sons when they took the choicest cuts of meat for themselves out of what the people had brought as sacrifices to the Lord. And it's ironic then that Saul tells Samuel in verse 15 that these animals had been spared so that they could be sacrificed to the Lord. Devoting them to destruction was the sacrifice that God commanded in this instance. That was how they were to be offered up as a sacrifice. To hold them back and sacrifice them later meant that Saul and the people could take from those sacrifices spoils. Could take from those sacrifices cuts of meat Essentially, then, to behave exactly in the same manner as Eli's worthless sons. This leads us to the second point of our sermon, obedience and sacrifice. What God wanted from Saul was obedience. He makes that very clear. What he got from Saul was empty worship. After the battle, we read in verse 12 that Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning And someone told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Now the battle between Israel and the Amalekites took place south of the southern border of Judah. Just think if you've got a a, a sort of a a visual map of of Israel in your minds. Judah is the southernmost tribe of, of the Israelite tribes. And of course, when the kingdoms are divided, Judah is the south and Israel is the north. Judah is the Judah's the good tribe, and Israel's the bad bunch of tribes, right? That's that's how we understand things, keep track of things. But to the south of Judah's border, you get down into an area that is is east of of Egypt. And that's where this battle against the Amalekites was was taking place. And so right on the border, the southern border of Judah, between it and and the lands of the other peoples to the south, Saul has this monument set up. And verse 12 says that the monument, very clearly the monument was set up for himself. It was a monument that was set up so that those who might cross into Judah would be aware of what might happen to them if they tried to do the same thing as what happened uh, to, uh, to the Amalekites. But in the words of one commentator, this monument suggests a process of self-aggrandizement out of keeping with Yahweh's command. Once again, it seems that Saul is trying to take glory. 
glory that belongs to the Lord in this case, to himself. He did this with Jonathan. He tried to, to take credit for the victories that Jonathan had won. And he's doing the same here. When, Samuel, when Saul is cha challenged by Samuel, however, he acts as if everything he's done is all about giving God the greatest form of worship. Samuel travels all the way down, tries to find Saul. Saul has headed back up to the north to Gilgal where, where he lives, his base. Samuel has to go and uh, track him down there. And when he sees Saul, Saul tries to act like everything is normal. He says in verse 13 to Samuel, Blessed be you to Yahweh. I have performed the commandment of Yahweh. And Samuel responds in verse 14, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? I'm guessing that every parent has had a similar experience in their lives with their children. And the child says, I've done everything exactly as you told me to do. And the parent sees uh, some issues with what has been done. Now, there's a great deal of evidence here that points to the fact that Saul didn't carry out the commandment of the Lord. And this, of course, is when Saul tells Samuel that he spared the best of the livestock to be offered as a sacrifice to God. When Samuel rebukes Saul in verses 16 to 19, Saul says it again. But this time he adds in verse 20, I have obeyed the voice of Yahweh. I have gone on the mission on which Yahweh sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. He makes it even more clear that it was the people who spared the livestock and took of the spoil in verse 21, but that they did it to offer the these as sacrifices to God. And so Saul, is, he's, he's blame shifting. He's trying to uh, move the, the, the blame onto the people. What Saul doesn't understand is that all the sacrifices in the world aren't pleasing to God if they come from a person who is insincere, from a person who doesn't mean it. If it's just for show. David writes in Psalm 40 verse 6. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. But you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. And then he writes in verse 8. I delight to do your will O my God. Your law is within my heart. If Saul's delight had been to do the will of God, to keep his command, then, then he would have known that disobedience in order to make a sacrifice to God would not be acceptable to God. Saul was honoring God with his lips while his heart was far from him. Sacrifices in the Old Testament were never efficacious in themselves to atone for sin. Sacrifices could not be effective. They weren't the thing that caused atonement to take place for sinners. Those who offered up sacrifices sincerely out of gratitude to God for His saving work, they gave evidence of their saving faith in the God who would make full atonement for them in the perfect sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so sincere worship, sincere sacrifice was predicated on a sincere faith. A faith in the God who would make atonement for them. Saul here was merely making a show of religion. And Samuel knows this. And so he tells Saul in verse 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen than the fat of rams. Obedience is better because it is the evidence of a true and living faith. 
Obedience is the fruit of a person who has received salvation. Obedience does not effect salvation. It's the product of salvation. It's the fruit of repentance. It comes about as as a byproduct, in a sense, of true and saving faith. And Samuel goes on to say in verse 23, For rebellion is as the sin of divination. This is a foreshadowing of what will come later in the book of 1 Samuel, isn't it? Because Saul is going to fall into the sin of divination later on. Rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. Now, these words, Saul seems to own up now to his transgressions in verse 24. He hears this, and finally, it seems like something has broken through his thick skull. He says there in verse 24, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of Yahweh in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He seems to be repentant here. It's hard to tell for sure, but he seems to be. Of course, there are a lot of, there's a lot of, of, of jailhouse repentance, right? There's a lot of courtroom repentance. When, when it becomes very clear that, that a person is going to be found guilty, then they throw themselves at the mercy of the court. And so it's hard to tell if this is genuine. But his repentance is coming only after he has been rebuked by Samuel and told that he is rejected as king of Israel. We have to admit, though, that sometimes that is when true repentance finally comes. And so we've got to find a balance. It's easy to be hard on Saul here. But we need to remember that he was a sinner just like we are. And if you look at the content of his confession, it's far better than many, if not most, confessions of wrongdoing you hear in our day. Most confessions today are, I'm sorry if I offended anyone. I'm sorry if I hurt you. Please accept my apology. And that's about it. At least Saul, for his part, is admitting that he has sinned against the Lord. And he says, that, he says it in such a way that it seems like there may be genuine repentance there. Saul asks Samuel to pardon his sin in verse 25. He also asks Samuel to return with him so that Saul may bow before the Lord. And Samuel says that he will not return with Saul. And then he, go, he turns to go away, but Saul grabs his robe and he tears it. And this... Turns out to be prophetic. Samuel says to Saul in verse 28, Yahweh has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Saul begs him again to turn with him, Samuel to turn with him and go with him. And verse 30 tells us that Samuel did return with Saul to bow before the Lord. Maybe, maybe there's genuine repentance on Saul's part. It's so hard to tell. This takes us to the third point of the sermon, no fear. Back in the late 1980s and and 1990s, there was a trend, at least where I lived. I don't know if if you saw it around here. For those of you who lived here then, I know many of you weren't alive in the 1980s and 90s. Uh, But there was a trend for people to put a sticker on their car that said, no fear. You may remember that. It was special kind of letters and it looked very aggressive and people were very confident and certain. And the people who displayed these stickers were sending the message that they didn't fear anything. They didn't fear you. They didn't fear me. They didn't fear God. They didn't fear anything else. That's at least what they wanted us to believe. But everybody fears something. And it boils down either to a fear of people or a fear of God. 
Now in the Bible, fear doesn't just mean to be afraid of people. Ed Welch, Ed Welch in his book, When People Are Big and God is Small, he says it includes, fear includes being afraid of someone, but it extends to holding someone in awe, being controlled or mastered by people, worshiping other people, putting your trust in people, or needing people. Now when Samuel confronts Saul with his sin, Saul admits that he has sinned. And he says these revealing words in verse 24, because I feared the people and obeyed their words. Our passage lays the blame for what happened at the feet of both Saul and the people. Verse 9 says that Saul and the people spared Agag and the rest of the livestock. In verse 15, after Samuel asked Saul how it could be that he fully carried out the commandments of the Lord when he could hear the sounds of the livestock in the background, Saul tells him that the people had brought the best of the livestock from the Amalekites to sacrifice them. And again in verse 21, Saul tells Samuel that the people took the, the animals to sacrifice them to the Lord. Repeatedly, he protests his innocence. But Samuel keeps showing him that as king, the buck, the buck ultimately stops with him. Saul appears to finally get it in verse 24. As we've already seen, he appears to recognize, he acknowledges that he feared the people instead of God. If what Saul is saying is true, then he caved to the wishes of the people rather than following God's commands to the letter. Now, it might be that he feared that they would rebel if he tried to stop them. It may be that he feared that they would lose confidence in him if he stopped them. But no matter the reason, he was more concerned with doing what the people wanted than what God commanded. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. The fear of man lays a snare. When you get caught up trying to please other people, you may land in a very dangerous and undesirous place. But as Psalm 27 verse 1 says, if the Lord is your light and your salvation, whom do you have to fear? Now think for a moment how different would the things would be if people didn't act out of fear of other people. How different would you be? We are all natural-born people-pleasers. As children, we all want to please our parents. And to a certain extent, that's a good thing. But sinful human nature takes what is good and it warps it. It twists it so that the desire to please people can trump everything else in our lives. We won't stand up to other people to stop them, even when we know what they are doing is wrong. Let me give you one example. Back in... 1999, I was recently been transferred from the Middle East back to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. I'd been assigned to a new unit. And at that point, I think I was either a Lance Corporal, I maybe had made E4 so that I was a Corporal, a non-commissioned officer. And I was a part of a, of a mortars section, a mortars squad. I was a mortar man in the infantry. And my section leader was a Corporal who, who was from Venezuela. And he was always being picked on and messed with. If you're different in the military, especially, I think, in the infantry of the Marines, it's not a pleasant, comfortable place for you to be. He was always being made fun of, always being picked on. And one night, uh, he was dragged out of his barracks room. And I think that in one sense, it was sort of good-natured playing, sort of, if you can call it such a thing, good-natured hazing. For those of you young children who don't know what hazing is, it's sort of like picking on people. It's a form of bullying. It often has the appearance of being fun and in jest, but in reality there can be an undercurrent to it that's quite dangerous. 
But these people dragged him out of his room and they taped him up. And I remember standing there, fairly new to the unit, not knowing what to do. Watching on with horror. This is my, my new section leader, my new boss, and, and I'm not sure what to do. And everybody's sort of laughing and making like it's a joke. But there was another young man, a Lance Corporal, Lance Corporal Brewer. And he and I were in Bahrain together. We were in two different platoons of the same company. And in his company, he saw a lot of hazing. And it wasn't in good nature. It wasn't good humored. It wasn't one of these things where everybody's in on it and having a good time. And while I stood there in fear, not knowing what to do, and senior in rank to Lance Corporal Brewer, he went in and he stopped what was going on. He put it to an end. He stood between uh, the corporal, our section leader, and he yelled at the Marines who were doing this to him. You see, he didn't care what they thought about him. He wasn't there to please these people. Even though he was brand new to the unit, just like I was, he knew what was right. And he took a stand for what was right. Now, I don't think Brewer would mind me saying this. He's not a believer. Um, not, not by any stretch. And so it wasn't a fear of God that caused him to do this. But if an atheist can stand up for what is right, then how much more ought we who are believers in Christ, who have been redeemed, who understand what it means to have a fear of God, how much more ought we to do the same thing? Fear of God, reverence and awe, and even love for God because of who He is and what He has done for us, it causes us to fear people less and less. Knowledge of God. Learning more and more about Him, who He is, what He has done. It causes us to have an awe for Him. You see, fear of God is not a slave-like or, 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 or servile-like fear. It's respect for him as our Heavenly Father who just so happens to be the creator of the universe and the most powerful being that there is. When we consider the attributes and the characteristics of God, the fact that he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, it causes us to grow in our fear and our reverence of him. When we as the psalmist in Psalm 8 does as he considers the heavens, the works of God's hands, and he, the moon and the stars which God set, has set in place, it puts him and it puts us in our proper place when we do this. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? When we understand how great God is, we really understand how insignificant mankind is and how we shouldn't be so concerned with what other people think about us when we are desiring to do what is right. Having a fear of man can end up causing us to commit grievous sins. We will either kowtow to people, that's one reaction to fear of man, or we will also, uh, the other reaction is we may try to dominate other people, to put them under our dominion, to, to, to make them be in, so in fear of us that we don't need to fear them. But having a proper fear of the Lord will prevent us from bowing down in worship of ourselves or of others. 
Another trendy thing that I've noticed people doing over the last couple of decades, I guess when you get to be in your late 40s, you start to do this. Approaching 50, back in my day, I remember these things. I, but the last few decades, I've, I've noticed people doing this. They, they love to say the phrase, no regrets, no regrets. You hear this from sports stars and politicians and the Hollywood elite. You also hear this from regular people. But even Frank Sinatra could sing that he had at least a few regrets, even though he did everything my way as he says in his famous song. But what does it mean, however, when we read in verses 11 and verse 30 and 35 that the Lord regretted making Saul king? How is it possible for God to regret something that he has done? Isn't, isn't regret, isn't that admitting that he has made mistakes? Well, in our own passage, we have what appears to be a contradiction here. Samuel tells Saul in verse 29, And also the glory of Israel, that's, that's the Lord himself, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And some of your English translations there in verse 29, they say there that God does not change his mind instead of have regret. But the same word translated regret in verse 29 is also there in verses 11 and 35. The Bible teaches, both in verse 29 and elsewhere, that God does not change. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. He is immutable. He doesn't change. Everything that God does is perfect, and so He cannot have regrets in the way that you and I do. Our regrets are based on the fact that we have made mistakes. And I think each of us, if... We're being honest with ourselves and others. We have to look back on our lives and admit regret for mistakes that we've made and, and even worse in reality. It is helpful if we understand God to be saying in verses 11 and 35 that he is sorry that he made Saul king of Israel. In other words, that what Saul has done grieves him. And this clearly shows, if we understand it this way, that while God is sovereign over everything, all things happen according to his perfect plan. So that he is, but he is not the author of sin. The, the Lord can grieve over the fact that Saul has sinned. Even though he knows that Saul's sin happens according to his sovereign plan, God grieves over his people's disobedience. You and I, we can grieve God the Spirit because of our sin. But this is what is meant here by the Lord regretting. He has sorrow. Just because God is without passions doesn't mean, in the words of Dale Davis in his commentary on this passage, it doesn't mean that God doesn't have emotion. But he can experience grief. He can experience sorrow because of the sins of his people. Well, in the end, Samuel had to do what Saul was unwilling to do. Verse 32 says that Samuel called for the king of the Amalekites, Agag, to be brought before him. And Agag, it says he, he came cheerfully, although that's somewhat disputed in the, in the passage here. Some manuscripts uh, have, have, I think, doubtfully. He's uncertain, it seems. And he says, surely the bitterness of death is past. Seems like maybe he's pleading for his life. He knows what's about to happen. Agag just wants to put all, the, all this past, all these terrible things behind them. But he and his people, 
his ancestors have committed grievous sins against God and crimes against God's people. He and the Amalekites are under God's judgment. And we read at the end of verse 33 that Samuel hacked him to pieces. Samuel is executing the penalty that Saul should have carried out as the king of God's people. In the last two verses, we read that Saul and Samuel depart from one another, and Samuel doesn't see Saul again until the day of his death. That takes us to the end of chapter 15. This is an unsettling passage. There are many things in this passage that are, that are discomforting. But we have to remember something. Like Saul, we too fear other people. And as a result, we disobey God. We, we do this, brothers and sisters, because we fail to cultivate within ourselves a proper fear of the Lord. And so we fail to obey God as a result of that. But we need to remember this. Yes, our obedience, even as Christians, is imperfect. Sometimes our obedience doesn't look a lot better than Saul's does, quite frankly. Sometimes our apologies for our sin is far less comprehensive than Saul's was in this passage. But even though God rejected Saul as king, those who trust in Jesus Christ, those who believe in the promised one who came and who died and who was raised again, they will, we will never be rejected. And I think it's important to remember that, even about Saul. We don't know fully his standing before the Lord. I hope that he was an Old Testament believer. I take some comfort in the fact that the passage there says that he didn't reject Saul, he rejected him as king. I take some comfort as a sinner. But hopefully if God can spare Saul, he can spare me. And knowing that if it is the will of the Lord to save me, a sinner, he can save someone like Saul as well. And this is all because you and I will not be rejected if we truly believe in Jesus Christ. Because the Father will never reject Jesus Christ, his Son, as King. Never. Though he rejected Saul... Though ultimately he did away with the whole kingdom of Israel. He will never do away with the kingdom of his son. So those who are in Christ can never themselves be rejected. And all of this is because Jesus Christ obeyed his father. Not for his own salvation. But for your and my salvation. He did it. On our behalf, his obedience is counted as yours and mine. And so we can say this with confidence, that God has no regrets over the sacrifice of his son. He is not sorry. We can say with confidence that he sent his son to his death. Because the end result was salvation. For you and for me, and for everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, that is good news. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for 
the salvation that we have in Christ, though our obedience to you is far from perfect. We confess to you, dear Lord, that so often we fear man, we fear other human beings rather than you, our infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God. We pray, dear Lord, that you would loom large in our consciousness, that we would focus on you. We pray, dear Lord, that by your Spirit, you would make us students of your character. That we would study your word to learn about your attributes. To learn about your magnificence, your majesty, your power. We pray, dear Lord, that we would study your creation so that we might have a better understanding of the grandeur of who you are as our creator. Lord, help us to fear you so that mere creatures, though they are humans made in your image, so that they would not loom so large in our minds. We pray that we would fear you so that we wouldn't be afraid of what other people might do to us. Help us, O Lord, to worship you rather than to worship the creature. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.